The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. Find out more about the network and other amazing Alberta-made podcasts at albertapodcastnetwork.com. I'm Dave Cornway. And I'm Ryan Hassman. And you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're recording this episode on Sunday, March 31st, and we're joined again by our guest producer, Chris Changyan Phillips. Welcome back to the podcast, Chris. Thanks for having me. Hey, Chris. Hello. Where's Adam? Uh, uh, Where uh, in the world is... Locations unknown. Yeah. (laughs) Soon to be back, perhaps. Are you guys old enough to remember where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? I love that show. Yeah, gumshoes. Yeah. We need like a little clip of where in the world is Adam Rosenhart. We are 17 days away from Alberta's next provincial election. For the duration of this campaign, we're going to be recording a new episode of the Dave Berta podcast each week. So let's jump right in. Dave, are there any nominations that you're going to be able to update us on? Yeah, well, on Friday, um, March 29th, uh, we reached the deadline for candidates to enter uh, to get their names on the ballot to run in Alberta's April 16th election. So we're at, right now we have the total, uh, the tallies from each party in terms of how many candidates are running. Uh, across the province. So we have three parties that are running 87 candidates. That's candidates in every single district in the province. So we have the the NDP, the UCP, and the Alberta Party are the only parties with full slates. Uh, next, interestingly, the party with the fourth most candidates running, the Alberta Independence Party. You know, I've seen with their 63 candidates. Have you? In St. Albert, yeah. There's okay. a few. And it looks, it's white and green. It looks like the old, old, like Alberta Alliance. Okay. Kind of stuff. Okay, we'll see if we can get a photo of one of those signs and, and put it on the uh, put it on the on the blog so people can take a look at it. I haven't seen any Alberta Independence Party signs yet, um, but I mean I'm I guess it's impressive that they have 63 candidates running across the province. It's more imp- than the Freedom Conservative Party and more than the Liberal Party, uh, which has 50 candidates running. Um, yeah, and, and yeah, rewrite more than the the Freedom Conservative Party, which has only I think they've only nominated 24 candidates across the province, which is you know about less than or I guess just more than a quarter of the, uh, of, uh, of the total. How much of that is a tactical choice? How much of that is not finding as many candidates as they want? Well, for Derek, the existence of his party is a tactical choice. Like he was on the record saying he's only going to run in seats that are strong UCP just to specifically harass the UCP. Yeah. Did we talk about Derek and those awful signs that I... On, on, we're talking about on, Derek, Derek Fildebrandt, yeah. the leader of the Freedom Conservative Party. And these, had, these were signs that were put up in the chest, Chestermere Strathmore writing, where he's running against UCP MLA, Leela here. Yeah. Yeah. On one of my two Twitter fights this week, this was the first one, because um, Leela is actually, like, honestly, one of the kindest people I've met in politics. And she never says a bad word about anyone. She has really come a long way. When she was elected, she was pretty new to politics. And I've seen her give a speech recently, and she's really great. And she was elected as a Wild Rose MLA in she the was. last election. And she stuck with Brian Jean all the way through because they were personal friends. And when Jason Kenney won the leadership, I think it was like the next day, he asked Lila to be the deputy leader. But Derek signs. I mean, when you guys were kids and your mom or dad um, were raising you, would they have let you get away with saying mean things if you were quoting someone else? I don't think so. I think saying, well, I didn't say. So the quote is from Jason Kenney, something like, how would it look if a bearded, white, redneck, blonde, def- dude, de- blonde, yeah, defeated a uh, person of color and, and a woman. And this has to do with going back to the UCP 
nomination contest in Chestermere Strathmore where Derek Fildebrandt wanted or initially wanted to run against Leela here because right. the, the way the boundary redistribution worked, they, both they, of their areas basically to, yeah. were merged into one riding. Yeah. And Fildebrandt wasn't allowed to run. And, and so Derek's point on Twitter, and I've seen it in other places, was, look, that's not my quote. That's Jason Kenney's. Okay, number one, there's no evidence of that. And Derek is the opposite of a credible witness. Number two, <laughs> repeating unkind words because someone else said them is still a crappy thing to do. So Derek, you know, he said, and this comes back, I'm sure we're going to get to the topic later of the TV debate. He's the one, he's the only party leader who has actually had the audacity to say, I'm not running a full slate on purpose. I'm only running in UCP strong. So he's basically just like a gadfly of party. You know, at least if you ask the liberals, they'll tell you we want to, we're running to win. At least if you ask the Alberta party, they'll tell you we're running to win. Derek's explicitly not. And so I think that probably was a factor in the TV debate decision where he is not currently included in the leaders. And I'm sure we'll get to that later. But yeah. how did the um, Liberal Party only end up with 50 and not get to 87? Yeah, the, the, the Liberals, 50 candidates, which I think is less. I think they had just what 56 or 57 candidates nominated in the last election. So this is like the lowest number of liberal candidates in an election since I think 1982. Uh, so this is quite, you know, I mean, no surprise the liberals in it, the provincial liberals aren't, aren't the, you know, the, the opposition force that they used to be in Alberta where they used to get around, you know, 30% of the vote, um, in provincial elections. They've, they've really been decimated, uh, by the, you know, over the past couple of years. Um, it, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't have a liberal candidate in my riding. Um, actually, I mean, you talk about the, we'll talk about the leaders debate in a minute, but uh, I don't have a liberal candidate or a freedom conservative party candidate in my riding. So no, when this you talk riding about, isn't. Uh, yeah, when you talk about in, in, including those leaders in in the debate, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the pod. Um, yeah, the the one thing that I I think I thought it was interesting, and we I think I mentioned this on last week's podcast, is that the liberals haven't nominated, and I guess they haven't at all nominated a candidate in Edmonton City Center which was a riding that the Liberals held from 1993 until 2015 when Lori Blakeman lost her seat to David Shepard. Um, I'm actually like quite surprised because I thought if there's one riding in Edmonton where the Liberals will have you know, nominated a candidate, I, didn't, I don't think that yeah. David Shepard... I think David Shepard's probably pretty safe in his seat in Edmonton City Centre, uh, but uh, I, I'm actually surprised that the Liberals weren't able to nominate a candidate in City Centre of all places in Edmonton because that's where yeah. they've you know, traditionally had a lot of support. Yeah, so. it says to me that the NDP has now fully taken the role of substantive opposition to whatever version of conservatism is on the right in our in our province. And if you look at the you know last few decades, there was always an alternative. It was usually the Liberals around yeah. 30, 35. Yeah. And the NDP, I mean, it's not that long ago they had two seats and yeah. four seats. So yeah. The, they've really kind of just flipped, and it's probably going to stay that way for a little while. Oh yeah, I suspect that that if you were to find people who voted, you know, voted liberal in two thousand four and two thousand eight, they're probably voting NDP in Alberta, at least in Edmonton and Calgary yeah. in in this uh, in this election. Um, I mean, the, the NDP, Rachel Notley has really inherited that that a big chunk of that vote. So it'll be interesting to see if the outcome is the same. If you look at the '08 election. 2011 or 2012 was different but if you look at 08 you know you had basically rural and calgary carry water for the conservative party edmonton delivered a lot of liberal seats it'll be interesting to see if that pattern remains or yeah. if the ndp is able to grow that anybody but conservative vote you know as they did in 2015 yeah so. yeah I mentioned earlier that the dave berta podcast is made possible in part thanks to the support of the alberta podcast network and right now I'm going to get Herman Vajegas to tell you a little bit about the Modern Manhood podcast. 
in the modern world, for men, modern society has created a reawakening of the question, what does it mean to be a man? It is not as clear-cut as it once was, and the answers are as varied, infinite, and complex as can be. This is where the podcast, Modern Manhood, comes in. Join me, Herman Villegas, as we explore how the different views of masculinity shape our daily life. For example, how the way we date, parent, school, and play are affected by the many shapes modern masculinity has its handle on us. This is the lives of men, as flawed, authentic, and complex as can be. This is Modern Manhood, a proud podcast of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV. The Dave Berta Podcast is also made possible in part thanks to the support of Edmonton Public Library. And what I need you to do right now is to check out their podcast, Overdue Finds. It's hosted by Bryce Crichton and Caroline Land, and they discuss movies, music, books, pretty much any sort of popular culture and media you can think of, and likely some you've never heard of or thought of. You'll learn more about what you can find at Edmonton's fantastic public library. The show comes out every two weeks. And you can find out more about the Overdue Finds podcast from the Edmonton Public Library at epl.ca slash podcast. That's Overdue Finds at epl.ca slash podcast. So two races that I'm watching this week, or that I've been, that I mean, out of the many races that I've been watching in this election campaign, uh, but two specific races that I think are, will be quite interesting and, and give some quite interesting results are Lethbridge East and Lethbridge West. Um, and I wrote about this during the first week of the election campaign on DaveBerta.ca uh, because it was notable because both leaders of the main parties, both Rachel Notley and Jason Kenney, made visits down to Lethbridge to campaign with their candidates during the first week, which is really notable. Uh, and as you and I have discussed, Ryan, you can really tell... Uh, a lot about a campaign in terms of where their priorities are um, and tactically where they think their you know where they think their 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 opportunities are whether they're on the defensive or the offensive where they go early on in the campaign and then where they go in the last week of the campaign yep. uh, so that both party leaders went to Lesbridge in the first week of the campaign I think is quite notable uh, and I so think really you're talking about two seats we're talking yeah, about two a seats. long drive Le- to get there yeah Lethbridge East and Lethbridge West uh, which are now currently both held Lethbridge East is held by NDP MLA Maria Fitzpatrick and Lethbridge West is held by NDP MLA and Environment Minister Shannon Phillips who <laughs> what's that yeah. uh, uh, an obscure MLA that yeah, I've never heard of yeah actually. prominent cabinet minister uh, Shannon Phillips uh, now Lethbridge has an interesting uh, electoral history in a lot of ways. I mean, Lethbridge, it's down in Southern Alberta. It's surrounded by rural areas that are very conservative, but Lethbridge itself has a voting pattern that bucks that trend. Yeah. In a lot of ways, Lethbridge is electorally is a lot more like Edmonton than it is like the rest of Southern Alberta well, or even if, Calgary. I wonder if the university has yeah, I, part of the reason for that. Yeah. The well. university of Lethbridge, Lethbridge college, there's um, a significant amount of public sector workers, federal uh, federal public employees, provincial public wind. employees. Keeps people and, from thinking straight. Yeah, it, it keeps the votes the from settling in terms of, 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 <laughs> of one political party. There's a community, community radio station there also. Yeah, absolutely. What's, yeah. The, what's the radio station called? CKXU. There you go. CKXU. I'm sure awesome. I'm sure it gives conservatives a fair shake and they do well on that, <laughs> on that, on that station's uh, opinion 
<laughs> so so Lutzbridge has uh, over the past. I, I wrote a post about this on the blog, as I said, uh, has had uh, a different kind of electoral history than uh, a lot of the other areas in southern Alberta uh, it, through the 1990s and through the 2000s. Lethbridge East elected liberal MLAs. Ken Nickel was a liberal MLA, liberal party leader for a short period of time. Uh, Bridget Pasteur succeeded him. She ended up crossing the floor to the PCs, and I think in like 2011. Uh, but very much a different kind of electoral history. And then we saw in 2012, the NDP kind of foreshadowing what what happened in, in 2018. The NDP vote in Lethbridge really, uh, really grew quite significantly Shannon in 2012. Almost, she almost won. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Shannon Phillips, she first ran in Lethbridge West in 2012, and she came like within a, like a razor's, in, razor's inch of winning in Lethbridge West in uh, in the 2012 election, which which was Raz- a surprise. Razor's edge. Razor's what? inch. Razor's inch. Razor's edge? You said razor's inch. Razor's inch? Oh, razor's edge. Sorry. Well, and it's remarkable because in the... It's 20- an old, old measurement going back to the old days. A razor's inch. In 2015... Razor's edge. They only elected four seats in 2012. So the, NDP, the fact yeah. that she came that close is actually pretty significant. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. Like there was an orange wave that time. Yeah, and I think it's to, to give credit to Shannon and uh, and the work on the ground. I think they, they had a real strong ground game in... in 2012 and in a way really capitalized in on uh, on the kind of the collapse of the liberal party vote which happened right around that time yeah so lethbridge east and lethbridge west i think are going to be really interesting ridings uh to watch and i think they could probably flip either way like i think they're both really up for grabs i i would probably give an incumbent advantage uh in lethbridge west but i think it's it'll be interesting to watch i think both parties are going to focus uh quite a bit on those two ridings yeah i agree um, the races that I was watching from last week, I guess, you know, you've seen um, Stephen Mandel, who's a local candidate, and one of them get quite a bit more attention than than probably is warranted by the polls. He's made some pretty strong, bold idea pledges anyway. And in Calgary Elbow, um, the, the anti-UCP slash GSA rally was actually held in Calgary Elbow. And they ended up walking to Doug Schweitzer's campaign. So those ridings remain interesting just because of the profile of the candidates running there. And mm-hmm. I still have no idea how either of them is going to turn out. But it's going to be down to the wire, I think, in both cases. So Or within a razor's inch. Or a razor's inch. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the big pieces of news that came out right after we recorded last week's podcast, uh, UCP candidate Eva Kyriakos, who was not the nominated candidate who had been acclaimed in the Calgary Southeast constituency uh, last year, uh, had she released a video, I think it was the night after we, we recorded last week's pod, uh, she released a video on Facebook talking about how she was resigning because she felt she was being bullied by someone who was threatening to smear her. Well, it turns out that Kyriakos had made homophobic transphobic and Islamophobic comments on social media uh, that somehow was not were not discovered when she was vetted as a UCP nomination candidate. Um, so she stepped down as the candidate uh, and was replaced before uh, before the nomination deadline, right before the nomination deadline, Matt Jones. Uh, I don't know too much about him. I think he's a chartered accountant. He ran he was initially running for the UCP nomination in Calgary Southeast, but then dropped out uh, before uh, Kyriakos was acclaimed. Uh, also, another person of note who dropped out of that nomination race in in Calgary Southeast was someone by the name of Cameron Davies, who we all know from the ongoing Jeff Calloway collusion 
financial scandal. Goat um, rodeo of incompetence. Goat rodeo of incompetence uh, that the RCMP are now investigating. Um, Investigating Davies and Callaway. I need to continue to remind people that Jason Kenney's campaign is not under RCMP investigation. Yes, but the whole thing is is now under a cloud. Yeah, and Cam Davies is a walking cloud of controversy and slime. So... Yeah, it's quite it's quite the story down there. What do you guys think of the UCP's ongoing candidate issue? Um, okay, so it did it. I don't think it's a surprise that a party led by Jason Kenney is attracting transphobic candidates to me. Um, in the last episode, I'd sort of said I I couldn't remember how he had voted on trans rights. Um, uh, since then, I, I looked it up. Um, he voted against it multiple times federally um, and also didn't specifically denounce Eva Kyriakis' remarks about trans people after this. So just a little background on this bill. Um, there uh, was There's only recently been federal human rights protection um, for gender expression and gender identity. But this bill was first introduced in 2005 by Bill 6A, then again in 2007, then again in 2009, and Jason Kenney voted against it. Then again in 2015, and Jason Kenney voted against it. And then it was finally passed in 2016, and Jason Kenney by then had left the House. Um, so that to me is like, I mean, I, I'm not surprised that a candidate like that would see a signal of feeling safe in a party led by someone who had voted that many times against this legislation. Although I guess the one point is probably the entire House, or the entire Conservative caucus no. probably would have voted. No. John Baird did, voted in favor of it right, multiple times. James Moore. Yeah. Um, I think Prentice supported it early. I also have, uh, I think, a really like stunning quote um, from the House debate when it did finally pass. Um, so I want you to see if you can guess which MP said this. In 2013, after a review of the bill, I concluded the bill would only amount to symbolic action for the trans community. I was wrong. In the last three years, I've watched this community face bigotry, more discrimination, and becoming a flashpoint for fights that we should no longer be having in Canada. It is for that reason that I believe it is time that Parliament passes the bill. It is clear to me, after watching provincial governments, employers, court cases, and the trans community itself struggling to rectify these injustices, that action cannot be taken to right these injustices without the bill passing. Before it does, I want to talk about bathrooms. This is what Evia Kyriakis had... One of the things that she'd said is that she didn't want uh, grown men, quote, walking into bathrooms with her daughter. This is a common way of denying trans people rights is accusing them of being all sexual predators. So uh, before it does, I want to talk about bathrooms. It's an unfortunate fact that in Canada, rape occurs. Men go into women's bathrooms and rape them. That is a fact. That is why there are panic buttons in many bathrooms in university campuses across Canada. That is why we have laws to harshly and strongly punish the perpetrators of sexual violence. That is why we educate people on the effects of violence to try to deter them from doing so. That is why we have police. However, here is a horrifying statistic. Jody Herman of UCLA's Williams Institute found in her study, conducted between 2008 to 2009, that members of the transgendered community tended to be incredibly at risk in public restrooms. In her study, about 70% of the sample of transgender people reported experiencing being denied access to restrooms, being harassed while using restrooms, and experiencing forms of physical assault. Additionally, the study showed that nearly 10% of the respondents reported to being physically assaulted in public restrooms. Therefore, while some like to blame and insinuate that transgendered people are the predators in washrooms, research indicates that they are instead vulnerable in these public spaces. Making a value judgment that because people are trans that they're likely to prey upon people in bathrooms is wrong. So guess who said this in the House of Commons on the debate over the trans right bill when it finally passed? I have no idea. Me neither. Conservative MP Michelle Rempel. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, 
I within the conservative movement in Canada, I would say Jason Kenney is not in the mainstream on this issue. And when Eva Kyriakis stepped down, what he said was, I thank her for that selfless decision. I've always been clear that the United Conservative Party is a big tent coalition that respects human dignity and will protect the rights of people regardless of how they pray or who they love. Just observe here that he doesn't say anything specifically about trans people. So that's what I have to say about that. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. It's, it was a difficult thing to watch it happen again during week two of the campaign. It's not like it's the first time a candidate with controversial statements and the comments I'm making right now are not a defense of her comments, but it's remarkable the lack of dexterity that the front runner party shows sometimes with this stuff that they should anticipate and have a plan and be able to basically keep this from happening in the first place. And yeah, it, it was disappointing. Um, the reality with these topics is that they are about people's lives you know, it's easier to talk sometimes about taxation and if 10% or 12% is the appropriate corporate rate. But even then, it's about people's lives. But I find with these ones, it's very directly with people's lives. And I didn't grow up knowing a single... No, that's not true. I didn't grow up knowing very many trans people. I didn't even grow up knowing very many other than heterosexual, at least publicly sort of living the lifestyle. And so I hope that there's voices like Rampoles and others in the movement can continue to not just sort of like speak in the house because that's super important, but also just introduce people to this diversity so that they can see that there's really human beings involved. And when you actually go to these gender neutral washrooms, they tend to just be single-use washers. It's just a bathroom. It's just yeah. a bathroom. It's just a single-use I, 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 I think I think it was Michael Connolly, the uh, the outgoing NDP MLA for Calgary Hawkwood, who said that, uh, you know, surprise, if, yeah. if you have a bathroom in your house, you've been going to a, you know, yeah. gender-neutral, you've been using a gender-neutral washroom your entire life. Yeah, and it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, no, and it really isn't. People's fears or people's biases can be um, exploited. And they can be made to fear things so that they vote certain ways. But our kids are going to grow up with, even actually the, the washrooms in our elementary school that the boys are at, they're totally different. It's all open. There's open openings sort of at the bottom of the stall. And there's no closed doors anywhere. And so, you know, society can move along. We can get better at this stuff. And if a little bit of miscomfort on my end makes a huge difference for someone else's life, then that's shouldn't be a big deal so I, I guess the thing that surprised me about this coming out I mean during you know at the beginning of the second week of the campaign is that I mean we, we this isn't the first time we've had a controversy with a UCP candidate this isn't the first time we've had a UCP candidate have to withdraw because of comments that they that they've said online or, or that they've said in the past uh, but we're keep but but the the message that we keep on getting told is that oh the UCP is going to have the most vigorous vetting process, the UCP you know we're, I don't think they've said that in a while. Well actually. no we're rigor rigorous that was, that was the big comment that, they that Kenny said, said that a while no, ago. No but but then yeah they said that a while ago but then Kenny's Jason Kenny's comment more recently was that there's no way that the UCP could have vetted 160,000 members. Well we're not the task in front of the UCP is not to vet 160,000 people. The task in front of the UCP is to vet 87 people yeah. who are running for MLA. And the NDP and, and have done it. 
Yeah, like absolutely. we said last week, yeah. they were ready to roll on Kalen Ford's replacement. Yeah, they probably have two or three layers deep on this stuff. Yeah, so it's 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 shocking to me. It continues to be shocking to me that that despite saying they're going to improve their process, uh, and having, you know, so many financial and organizational advantages and you know the entire might of the conservative establishment of, of Alberta with all those all the resources available to it uh, that they weren't able to properly vet 87 candidates and that we're still talking about this we're still talking yeah. about this during the second week of the election campaign well and I'm going to get myself in trouble here but I would add to that and also say we have people many of us who have lived through this on both sides in 2012 in particular the Wild Rose campaign imploded at the mm-hmm. end, mostly, uh, largely due to these issues. So we have people who both did it on the PC side. I've talked to them. were able to use this stuff effectively. And many, many people who have experienced it and live in this constant state of panic um, from the Wild Rose side. So we, we not only should we have known this was going to happen, we have a lot of experience on both sides of it. And I am disappointed that... Here we are, and we're talking about this. Yeah, and 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 now it's set in. Now that the candidate nomination deadline has passed, it's set in stone. So, do you think there's some stuff? So that's what surprises me. Is like I I expected if the NDP had more of this research that they would have released more of it like right before the deadline. Yeah. To, like, but if you do it now, there's no. So Machiavelli's famous work talks about how if you have um, effective news, to drip it out slowly. Hmm. So I actually think. We're not through the woods yet. It's possible that the NDP is going to just do one of these every couple of days yeah. now that it's too late. Because had they done it all on Friday, it would have not been great. But at least then it would be over by the next news cycle. You could replace the candidates, and it'd be it'd be, and they wouldn't be on the ballot anymore. Yeah. This like this is why when caucuses try to force out leaders, they don't all just go out at the same time. They time it every couple of days. One of them calls for the leader to mm-hmm. just to maximize. Build it up, build momentum. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it will be interesting to see whether the NDP have more because yeah, they've been in terms of their their research on on their candidate on UCP candidates and nomination candidates. Um, like they've really done their homework. Um, so it'd be I'm, I'd be surprised if they didn't have more. But I guess we'll see uh, see how things go over the next couple of weeks. As we talk about wading into a lake of fire, um, why are we talking about GSAs again? <laughs> You know, I I was I was sure that the UCP would not want to bring this issue up during an election campaign. This is the the gay straight alliance issue is something that has caused the conservative parties, and I mean the UCP and the, its predecessors in the Wild Rose and the PC Party, so much grief over the past yeah. five six years um, that I thought you know the UCP is running a front runner campaign. They're ahead in the polls. If they played it safe, you know. They're probably going to win a massive majority, but then to step to wade into the gay straight alliance issue to bring it to purposely bring it up, well buried, b- bur- buried, buried in, buried in an education platform. Education yeah, platform. so so and, and to, 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 too, yeah, right? to provide some yeah some context to this, it's the UCP. Jason Kenney released the part his party's education platform this earlier this week, and included in the platform was the pledge to implement the Education Act. Uh, which is an old PC, well, not old, but it's a it's a PC a piece of legislation passed by the PC party, inclusive of Bill Ten. That wasn't, yeah, but it, but it was never proclaimed. So right now, Alberta has the Schools Act, which is this old piece of legislation dating back to the 1960s, which the NDP have amended uh, over the past four years to include additional protections 
for students who want to form gay-straight alliances at their schools and protections for students who decide to participate or be act be involved in gay-straight alliances in their schools. What the implementing the Education Act would do would basically override the changes that the NDP made in the Schools Act, and the Education Act would like replace the Schools Act. So, I, I think we have to be fair. The Bill Ten does provide explicit approval. The difference, the differences between Bill Ten and Bill Twenty Four are of scale and of magnitude, and of really firming up the the uh, firming up the rules and putting basically making it so that parents and educators can never oppose GSAs. Like there are no circumstances where a GSA can be implemented in any school. So what got me a little bit upset. Can be think, blo- there's no circumstances where it can be blocked. In right. School. Sorry. Yeah. So if a student so wants to start one, the, the, use, the administrators can't, the school yeah. administrators can't stop. So after Bill 10, they tighten it up that way. <clears throat> that legislation, it's further than any other jurisdiction in the province, in the country <clears throat> had to your, staying away from policy, talking about tactics it was a very painful political issue for the UCP. Like getting through it, opposing Bill 24 was not great because the nuance is so really so hard to communicate. But the giant whacking stick that the other side has is they can say things like we're anti-gay kids. We're not fully supportive of the bullying issue, the suicide issue, like all these really sort of difficult things. So by rolling back to Bill 10, the UCP has allowed the more forward-pushing elements of the left to use those old arguments again. So I personally this week was asked how I sleep at night and referred to as monstrous because I do have some concerns with Bill 24. I think that it was very ugly because there's a lot of room for supporting gay kids and being anti-bullying but also having some concerns with Bill 24. Like if we're at the point where anything but support for Bill 24 makes you a monster, then I don't know how we're having them, like how we can have conversations in this province. And if that is really what they think, like what, not just, it's not really the NDP, it's more like their their network of supporters, then I think they're going to have trouble convincing like the parents out there who really aren't super comfortable with Bill 24 to listen to them because... Once you call someone a monster, there's nowhere to go from that. So, for example, on the parental notification, Bill 24 says there's never a circumstance where parents can be notified ever. That their kid is participating right. in a GSA at school. Jason Kenney and the UCP did not, when they made their announcement, they did not call for mandatory parental notification. They didn't even call for recommended parental notification. They just took it back a step from under no circumstance can ever any parent ever be notified. Like the the extreme position is Bill 24. There's like degrees from recommended notification, optional notification, can never notificate. So notify. So if you think that it's monstrous to have anything other than can never ever notify under any circumstance, I have an issue with that. Now I, I realize this is getting back to what it's really about, which is the private schools. That's, that's what I want to talk about, yeah. the private schools. And this goes back to... Uh, a quote that Jason Kenney, uh, that t- something that Jason Kenney said in an event, and I'll, I'll post a link to the, the news article, I think it was down in southern Alberta, uh, where he basically told um, or said that 
private schools and really we're talking about private Christian schools. Although there's uh, will stop. other religious ones too. Yeah, they're uh, absolutely. Um, but they'll be basically their, their, their lawsuit against bill 24 will stop the day he forms government. And the issue about move, implementing the education act over the school, over the changes that have been implemented by the NDP over the schools act is that it will no longer apply to private schools in terms of, of kids being allowed, basically administrators not being able to stop, uh, uh, students from forming gay straight like alliances. The case in St. Paul, Alberta. Well, I think that was a. I think that was actually a Catholic public. Well, that was school. Catholic public. So, I mean, part of this is is appealing to the. I mean, and this is when I, when I said I was surprised that that they that they that they even talked about this during the campaign. I mean, part of this is appealing to a to a part of the UCP's base, to a part of Kenny's electoral coalition, which is these independent private schools. It's the Parents for Choice groups. It's these groups that have been advocating, uh, you know, uh, vigorously against gay straight alliances and advocating vigorously against the you know the government even becoming involved or legislating anything having right. to do with about to gay straight alliances. And I mean, you should be clear, these schools are private schools, but they receive, I think, a 70% funding per student from right. the government of Alberta. So they're private schools nominally. The they receive they receive a significant amount of public funding and what the, yeah. what the provincial government did. And I agree that in some ways, I think David Egan was a little bit antagonistic with some of them in terms of his public comments. Oh, when he was minister. When he was minister, yeah. but uh, in, of education. But that's politics but, too. But See, that's both politics, sides are playing. But, but if, if, I mean, I, I, so, I mean, I think that, you know, there's the, the, I think there was a little bit of antagonism, but if these schools want to receive public funding, they should have to abide by public rules. And that means protect, that means protecting kids. That means you fall under the same rules. Protecting kids is what bothers me though, because notifying, and I realize there are bad parents for sure. There are bad parents, but our entire society is built on the idea that we can't legislate away because there are bad parents. Like, and the other and frustration yeah, with this yeah we should we should note that 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 uh, you know kids from you know gay kids sexual minority kids um have higher rates of suicide they yeah. have higher rates of homelessness i have statistics on some of this okay so this is part of why i feel like people who aren't queer don't maybe don't get why this is so emotional yeah um so according to a gale canada in 2013 um 33% of queer youth had attempted suicide compared to 7% of youth in general um 47% of trans youth had thought about suicide in the last year. That's a massive disparity. Yeah. This issue of GSAs and like having structured support for kids in school is not something that came up when I was in high school. This is right. like pretty amazing to see as like, oh, for sure. Like a next generation. The um, culture has totally changed, right? I think it's totally disingenuous to say um, we're not banning GSAs in schools. We're just allowing parents to be notified when they have some concerns because the parents who have concerns are going to be the ones from families where the kids already feel threatened at home with being bullied, harassed, physically attacked, or kicked out by their parents. Right. Those are the ones where they're going to demand that their teachers tell them if their kids are in a GSA. And so those kids are going to be deprived of access to that resource. And also this same Miguel study points out that um, like a generic anti-bullying and safe school policy is not sufficient. Um, it's not enough. So. Um, like we're talking about actual kids lives on the line because kids do commit suicide from this stuff. They do end up on the streets. Um, so they found that in schools and school boards with queer specific policies, queer youth and youth with queer parents are more likely to feel respected, to feel safe and less likely to be subjected to homophobic and transphobic verbal abuse or physical attacks. Like those are real, 
like actual survival yeah. issues for students. No, and, and I honor that. And I, I don't understand. I haven't lived the experience. So I, you know, I want to be vulnerable that I don't fully understand it. But in the one thought that I had as we were talking about this is in those cases with the parents who are potentially abusive and potentially harmful, um, they're going to go underground. Like when we're talking about the really young kids, so I'm not even thinking of the 17-year-olds. I'm thinking of the 12-year-olds and the 8-year-olds. If they are so um, basically bigoted against this stuff, they're going to pull their kids and they're going to homeschool their kids. So, like, you can't legislate a perfect safety net for extreme situations because the parents who would be, you know, physically harm their child or even psychologically harm their child because they thought they could be flirting with catching the gay or whatever they are not the ones who are going to put their kids in public school anymore. So I, you, I respectfully disagree. I, I know families. Well, do uh, you who, though? Like, I, I do know families who let their kids go to public school and created a very hostile environment at home for their kids. Yeah. And I, pulled their kids too out of like but any sex ed that would have now. mentioned any se- messages about sexuality right. or gender that they didn't want. So what, what choice, what's that group calling in? Parents for Choice and Education. For, that... Cr- crew what they will be saying is because of this bill you need to homeschool like i'm not necessarily against homeschooling but my point was i anything less than full blanket legality banning parental notification ever we're the only jurisdiction in the country with it and having some issue around there i don't feel like that makes me a monster i I'm very sad about that situation. And I know that culture has changed where our kids now, you know, the thing that would make me proud is if they were supportive of a GSA. Like what I say to people on the right, whether it's on the steps of our cul-de-sac or others, is GSAs aren't these secret sex clubs that are, you know, introducing sexual topics to five-year-olds. They're not. It's about feeling safe and feeling supported. And so we need to find a way to be able to have these conversations and you continue to live it and I don't but like people like me have to be brought along a little bit too and when the the choice is monster or nothing like it makes people close down it doesn't make people listen to the arguments because if you're calling them a monster there's nowhere to go from that I'm, I'm sure most parents would be fine but but if we can if if this type of 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 legislation and rules that the NDP have implemented can protect just one or just two or dozens or hundreds of kids I think that's enough um, I mean I don't I yeah in terms of of, of of providing you know a safe environment for these types of kids in in situations where they may not have you know may not have a, a safe environment at home. So so I, want, so I don't think I don't think it's too I don't think it's too heavy handed. I think it's something that, that, that we can, you know, that we as a society can work work with. And I think that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, maybe even five years from now, we might just be all, you know, our kids might be <clears throat> totally confused about why we were, we were even talking about this issue in terms of an election, because it would just seem so straightforward that, right. you know, of course you wouldn't. Why would you know, why, why would why would you want a teacher to inform a parent when uh, when a student's a student's involved? Did you just call that straightforward? Straightforward. Yes. That's Sorry. heteronormative, Dave. <laughs> yes. Very, very, very <laughs> heteronormative over here. I, Sorry, want, I want to honor. What, <laughs> I want to honor what Chris shared because it is um, deeply meaningful and I'm not in any way arguing against those stats or any of that. But as a tactical issue, because this podcast is focused on the horse race, we're not the deep dive on policy. 
as a tactical issue, it was completely um, unnecessary yep. to open this up because we gave our we I'm not I have no role in the campaign, but the UCP gave its opponents another chance to whack us over the head with these sticks to have headlines saying Jason Kenney wants to roll back support protections against gay kids, like the most divisive, painful stuff that we had gotten past. We've now gone back to and re-experienced, and it was an elective decision. They had just said, you know, we're going to implement the Education Act and inclusive of Bill 24. Yeah. None of this is, we wouldn't have spent the week getting yeah. called, you know, having this debate. Well, well, so. and, and, and it also tells us that that it's not just, we're not just going to debate this to have this discussion during the election. It's something that's going to be reopened in the yeah. summer and reopened in the fall, and we're going to be having debates around GSAs and, again. But broadening uh, this Even out, though we've been talking about this yeah. for, like... Since we've done our podcast. Since, like, for, yeah, but before that, for, like, six years, we've been, we've been debating yeah. this in Alberta politics. Broadening this out, though, this is a very interesting tactical decision by the UCP campaign. And last week I mentioned this, that I was told we're not going to be running any sort of, like risk averse front runner strategy we're actually going to have very detailed policy positions and here is that living out kenny's um so yesterday they released the platform but even before that they would release these long detailed multi-point statements mm-hmm. emma graney on their podcast called it um mental i think <laughs> as an old maybe can't say that anymore but like um you know just Kenny has done the opposite of a risk-adverse front-runner campaign. He's actually providing a ton of detail. And, and our opponents, the op- opposition, can find things to get excited, people excited about in all of these policies. But he's making the, ca- the tactical decision that on the positive side, having detailed, fleshed-out proposals means that the media will cover those proposals and people know exactly what he's going to do. So... A front-runner campaign would have rolled out a very brief education thing with some high-level stuff. Wouldn't have touched this. But they went into lots of detail, not only about that, around the curriculum review, around standardized testing, like all of these detailed things, which provides people something to bite into both on the positive and on the negative side. It'll be really interesting to see how detailed the NDP platform is today. Yeah, they're releasing their yeah their NDP are releasing their platform today. Next, After we're recording, but before we'll release the episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so next week, I think for our, our next pod, we'll uh, we'll t- we'll go more into depth with uh, with both the the NDP and the UCP platforms. Although, um, let's the, predict the, what the, it'll be. The no no no. I, I just I just want to go back to the UCP platform for a second, and it's been suggested that and I think this is something that's that's important politically to 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 talk about is. It's been suggested that one of the reasons why the UCP is releasing uh, so much, so much policy, and they're in they're so much making so many policy announcements, releasing this massive policy document, is because they're using the election campaign as the consultation period, and that if they get elected into government, they're going to hold a summer session and start implementing some of this stuff right away without holding a formal consultation period for legislation. Seeking a mandate from the voters. Yeah, no, no, but this is but no, but, but, that's but, what but, elections are. No, no, but this is important because typically when when governments implement legislation, there is a consultation period when you're writing the legislation. And even though you've been elected to have a mandate, you have any you have a mandate to implement it, there's typically traditionally uh, a consultation period where you go out and you talk to stakeholders and you you know you hold meetings and right. and there's actually consultation. Well the summer um, of repeal you may have a point. Yeah. The the, the UCP if elected are going to go straight in and implement some of this stuff right away without the kind of traditional talking to stakeholders and and, yeah. and talking to the experts they're just going to implement it and that they're using this as 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 their consultation it's period. a nefarious way to look at things i mean well also, i don't think it's i don't think it's nefarious i think it's 
what, what's playing out right in front of our eyes. And, I, and obviously, they're not going to implement this everything in here in the first summer. But if um, you're the they're, critics, they have to of, introduce like a hundred pieces of legislation within the first couple months. If they had released a really high level, undetailed thing, then the opposition would say, "Typical conservatives, they're not telling us what they're really going to do. They have a hidden agenda, and they're just going to figure it out as they go." Like, there's crit- criticism either way. This is the most detailed platform for sure in my lifetime that any provincial conservative party has put out, but at least they're putting out policy. Oh no, I'm not faulting them for putting this stuff out. I'm just saying that, that looking ahead, uh, in in post-election, if the UCP forms government, that, that I think we're going to see a lot of this stuff implemented pretty quickly. So the top five, so what they've said is this plan includes three priorities, (laughs) but of those three priorities, there's five major commitments. So the commitments are number one, job creation plan. Number two is repeal the carbon tax. I didn't think we had a clear position on that one, but I guess we do. <laughs> number three is to stand up for Alberta. Number four, get our fiscal house in order. Number five, protect quality health care and education. It's amazing that we've put out, I forget what the count is, but it's like over 100 policy points. And it's overwhelming. Like the system, the 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 pundit system, like us, the media... No one can even really quite keep up with this like overwhelming amount of policy. It'll take some time to really chew through it. People look for hot button things for sure. But it's a very detailed plan. Now, the other thing I'm going to say to fulfill my role as the conservative hack of this group is that the platform also has promised to balance the budget by 22-23 and that the economic forecasts were confirmed and validated by Stokes Economics the same firm that is providing forecasting for the government of Alberta. So the NDP pre-platform today have essentially been making a lot of very expensive promises. I would call that the NDP doing what NDP governments do. In, investing in people, I think is how, right. how the NDP would put Spending it. Spending your way out of trouble. So they, going into this campaign, they have actually changed the goalposts quite a bit on their pr- promise to balance the budget. So in the 2015 platform... They projected a balanced budget for 19. In 2017, at the budget speech, they didn't mention balancing it at all. And then in NDP's 2019 fiscal update, they projected a balanced budget for 2023. The big difference being before this election, they were already forecasting about $95 billion in new debt. So the platform today will probably add to that. So, you know, this is part of why we have politics. On one side, you have people saying we need to invest in people and we need every, I mean, it's hard to, you can always say, well, which program would you cut? Or Mm -hmm. what about this program? Do you really oppose that? And then on the other side, it's easy to say, well, sure, but overall spending is a problem because our kids are going to have to pay this back. So we'll see. Um, I I don't have a problem with governments running deficits. So that the balance (laughs) that the government, that both parties plan to balance the budget by a certain date. I don't, that's really meaningless to me. I don't really care. I don't, governments can run deficits. Mm -hmm. That's fine. Um, I mean, I understand that like, you know, there's a, you know, deficits of certain amount once it reaches a certain level of debt to GDP and deficit to GDP, then you start to run into trouble. Alberta is nowhere near that. Um, So I don't, the the whole promise to balance the budget by 2022 or 2023, I don't really care. Um, I'm interested to see in terms of the, the, what, what the NDP platform includes in terms of, I I was excited to see this week that Rachel Notley announced the expansion of the $25 a day childcare program. I think that's something that will have a real impact, a positive impact on a lot of Alberta families. Um, And I I do have some comments on the UCP platform, Mm. but I was surprised to see that there was nothing about childcare in the UCP platform. 
And I think in a province that has the youngest population in the country, we've just had a big baby boom in Alberta following the recession. Um, I mean, childcare is a big issue. Uh, and the cost of childcare uh, is huge. The, not, not only the cost, but the accessibility of childcare is, is quite a huge thing. So I was excited. I was excited to see the NDP talk about it. I was glad to see the Alberta Party talk about it earlier and during the first week of the campaign. Um, but I was disappointed to see that the UCP didn't even mention childcare in their election platform. Right, but their ideological <clears throat> difference here is that they want to make life more affordable for families in every other way so that they can pay for childcare, right? Like, well, I mean, government I, but, is the but, answer but, to every problem. So, so my, I mean, I wonder if I'm to assume that the UCP would cancel the $25 a day childcare programs that already sense. exist. I don't so, think they've said either way. Yeah, so I mean, that's... Because like, it was a pilot project. How wide... I think there were about 100 locations around the 100 spots around the province where they had uh, the locations, not spots for children. Yeah, locations. That's right. Yeah. So how many spots? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I'll drop to... in the bucket. One of the problems with this, as with there, we're going to hire a thousand new teachers by September and we're going to build 70 schools in the next four years. One of the some of the problems I don't have a problem with that. Is they sound great, but implementing it is very difficult. Like, where do you find these child care spaces? Twenty five dollars a day for every how many children in Alberta would be the right age? On the order of two or three hundred thousand, like you can't just Thanos snap your fingers and create that many spaces, <laughs> right? Why didn't he do that with the gauntlet? You could say there's still we can, we can see what he does in the next Avengers movie coming out later this or next the month. NDP parties tend to want to spend, and conservative parties tend to want to spend less. I mean, this is not new. This is this is why we have elections. Um, what else stood out for you about the NDP campaign's promises as of now, pre-platform? So I mentioned they, they said 1,000 new, I think it's 1,000 new teachers and administrators. I don't know if it was adding up to 1,000, not 1,000 of each. So I think it was 1,000 including teachers and administrators. And then 70 new schools. I'm trying to think of what else they've promised. I was kind of just waiting for the platform to be released to... Uh... Let's talk about platforms. Dave and I had a bit of a fight argument yesterday about platforms. Chris, when you... When parties deliver their platform, how much weight do you give it? You're the normal person here in our podcast, so we're looking at you. Um, I, want a, I want a gist. I don't need every single detail. <laughs> Uh, I want to know like roughly the direction the policy is going, but I, I like, I'm interested in the UCP points, but I, I don't know that I'm going to read every page. Um, and to, to be honest, like my voting decisions are usually determined by like broad party policy stuff and then, Values, right? and then going to the candidates debates and seeing like which candidate is actually competent mm -hmm. because there can be a shocking gap. I agree with that. Well, do you, are you telling me though? In any given provincial or federal election that you are actually waiting until the local candidate debate? Are you talking about the leaders debate? Uh, local candidates debates have changed my vote more than once. So I would, I will suggest that you were going to either vote liberal or NDP, for example, and then the local debate helped you decide, but you were never going to actually support Wild Rose. You know what I mean? Like your vote was pretty fixed already. And then a particularly bad candidate performance can swing it one way or the other. But you're not truly undecided. Like, does platform or candidate debate help you decide? Or is it more like a final check to make sure things line up with your values? Uh, I guess probably, yeah, more, more of a final check. 
Yeah. I mean, I guess what are we really talking about the climate leadership plan and the accusation that the NDP didn't say that they were going to bring in a carbon tax? Because to there be was on, no word carbon tax in the platform. I, I, that's true. And uh, I, I hidden agenda. I, I, like, I don't see that as a hidden agenda. I see that as um, I participated in the massive public consultations on what they were going to do about climate leadership plans. And like we had a little community group in my neighborhood where I set up eight laptops and got everybody to fill out their laptops on what they wanted out of that, <laughs> that plan. Right, right. There's a huge layer of politics on all these types of conversations. But the platforms themselves, like I know that the public or sorry, the permanent government, like not the political government, but the actual apparatus government. The actual public service. Yeah. Look at platforms to prepare because yeah. what they offer each incoming government is sort of a schedule and an agenda of how they can begin to implement their platforms. And I know they take them all seriously because they need to. And they use it as at least a draft of what the government's priorities are mm -hmm. going to be. So I do think platforms matter. I think platforms sometimes suffer from the same fate as opposition shadow budgets do, which is where like you're held accountable for things that you don't really have full information on. Hmm. And so that's why typically you would stay out of the weeds because you may get to government and find out that the situation is a little bit different than mm -hmm. you thought. Uh -huh. So um, I also think it's important to make note that we're only talking about the Alberta liberals this week because they've taken some pretty big swings with their platform or at least with their policy. Proposals. Yeah. So, yeah. The, the, and I guess, do we want to, delve right into the liberals I, I, but before we go into the liberals i just wanted to, to just just to, to mention something about the ucp platform that's positive Ooh. uh I, I was pleased to see that there was mention of orphaned wells and abandoned wells in yeah. the ucp platform and i because that i think it's a big issue i think it is an issue that should be talked about in the election and so yeah. far none of the political parties have talked about it um right now and i think it was the cd howe institute report uh that estimated that there were more than 155,000 Alberta energy wells that have no economic potential and will eventually require reclamation across the province. So that's, I think that includes, uh, so I had the 155,000, I believe that includes abandoned wells and orphaned wells and wells that just will be shut down soon. And that's huge. And it may not be an issue in the urban centers. So it may not even be People in, in Calgary and Edmonton might not even have any idea what I'm talking about, but in rural Alberta, where these wells are everywhere, I think it's a significant issue, and uh, I think it should be something that the parties talk about, because they do have potential to to cause significant damage. And I understand that some of them, if they just sit there, like in some cases, like it'll be a long time before they cause any kind of atmospheric or water damage, but, but the fact that they're there and that they're abandoned, that these companies basically just walked away from them after the recession, or when the price of oil dropped... Um, I mean, and I understand that there's the there was the Redwater decision at the Supreme Court of Canada, which said that when the companies go bankrupt, that they have to put right. reclamation and, and you know these environmental reclamations ahead of basically paying off their shareholders. But it doesn't uh, sound like a hundred thousand of them that are. But out but there. that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't necessarily impact the ones that are already abandoned. Yeah. So it's kind of like a going forward. And from what I understand, like the government and the oil wells association are still like trying to figure out how that actually had actually implement that. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of the wells that are abandoned now, um, yeah, I think that there, that, that does, it does deserve attention and it's kind of this environmental issue that's lurking out there that hasn't been talked about since. I just wanted to throw a full yeah. disclosure tag in there of, um, this, this whole network is sponsored by ATV, which was an intervener in that case. Nice work. That's great. In, an intervener in a good way. Uh, they we, lost, we <laughs> But they intervened. ATB was advocating they, for companies not to be liable for the full costs of orphan wells. Oh, oh, okay. oh, they were on that side. Okay. 
Well, the Supreme Court has decided. You know, and my Keynesian side will show a little bit here that in times of um, low employment or low opportunities for the skilled trades and people out there who are in the industry, it seems to me that funding some of the reclamation work mm-hmm. would be a good use of government resources, or at least we waste money on worse things. So I'm more of a Keynesian than most of my <laughs> conservative friends. I do think that employment should be a very high goal, even at the cost of deficits at times. I supported mm-hmm. the economic action plan in 2008. So I think maybe the next time we're in a recession like this, rec- reclaiming some of these sites and employing the very people who can't find work on the other side of the development process would be a good idea. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of government-funded job creation projects as well. So like the Hoover Dam. So, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we have all these uh, these unemployed or underemployed trades guys out there. Um, I think it'd be a good, you know, it could be a good project to, to at least investigate. Is, Ryan, are you advocating for a Green New Deal? Is that what we, should we tweet that out? <laughs> AOC. No. <laughs> they uh, they call me Red. They don't call me Green. <laughs> Red Ryan. Well, one of my, or I guess our favorite topics came up this week. A, a party actually called for the implementation of a sales tax, although I had predicted it would be the Alberta party. When in fact it was the original Alberta Party, the <laughs> Alberta Liberal Party. That's right. So I'm going to tell you a couple of things that I like about this policy: the essential elimination of income tax up to a household income of 114,000. I think that's great. I'm all for tax cuts in any circumstance because I just support it. And I also like the reduction in corporate tax rate. It's interesting that they were sophisticated enough to call it an HST instead of a PST. And that's a harmonized sales tax with rather the, than a provincial sales tax. GST. And they've actually also said it'll be the feds. They're going to call, they're going to call on the feds to, to hike the rate of P, GST in our province and then write a check back to the government. And this is similar to other provinces. Some yeah. other provinces, I think Newfoundland does this and does British Columbia do this? Or they well, did, they did they it had for that a while? HST okay. for a little while. So the politics of this are pretty bold. Um, a lot of the right, at least on Twitter, likes it. Like a lot, there's a lot of economic principle here that a consumption tax is better. But like we've said in the pod before, I really believe that your willingness to propose things like this is directly related to how far away from power you are. And the fact that the NDP didn't touch a sales tax when they had a safe majority four years to do it shows me how deeply unpopular this is. Also, there's the issue that they would have to hold a referendum to bring in a sales tax. Or, or repeal the legislation. Or you can imagine the opposition, how easy it would be to... I mean, Derek Fildebrand, because he won't be an MLA anymore, will fire up the whole like <laughs> clock trailer thing behind his truck and just go around and... Um, oppose the liberal government's policy. Like it's the politics are really tough. So, but props to the uh, to the liberal party. And I actually, so I tend to take their side a little bit. And part of it is they were there first. Like in a way, part of what annoys me about the Alberta Party is that they're just so clearly. Sorry, who was there first? The liberals. What it kind of I mean, they were the first government in Alberta going back to 1905. <laughs> yeah, but I also mean in that ideological <laughs> they were, literally space. were there first. Yeah, they were the first. But I mean in that ideological niche that they have in the spectrum. Okay, yeah. the Alberta Party can't find itself. Fight isn't even a thing. We're we're gonna get letters, Ryan. But this is I give credit to the Liberal Party because if you looked at their platforms now, they're very similar. The Liberals have always been there. It's the Alberta Party that can't find itself. That is redundant. So I give David Con some credit for. Fighting to hold a spot in the ideological niche that is tough to hold because it's the center. Um, And the Alberta Party basically was a tactical decision that the word liberal is poison. So they 
aren't the liberal party, but if you compared most of them, it's a centrist pro-business party, which I guess what I'm saying is the Alberta party is redundant and I'm standing up for the little guy. So <laughs> for, David Kahn, you're doing a, a decent <laughs> job. And for all my progressive friends who just can't vote UCP, I highly recommend that they vote Alberta liberals. Kudos to the liberals for, for talking about a sales tax. I think it's good. They're actually the second party to talk about a sales tax during this election. The Greens proposed it oh, the Greens. Uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah. So, I forgot so about we have them. two well, well they're running I think they're running like thirty two candidates across the right. province. So even more than Derek Fildebrand's party. Because uh, they actually have an ideological point other than just tactical troublemaking. Yeah, yeah. So I mean I think that, you know, good on them for, for implementing or for talking about a sales tax. I don't necessarily agree with, with, with getting rid of the income tax. I think that part of the big problem in this province is we have a revenue, big revenue problem. So getting rid of revenue. Uh, and this is my same my same issue with the UCP platform. Getting rid of revenue isn't gonna solve our problems in this province. We actually need to have a need to talk about revenue. Uh, the other thing the Liberals talked about this week was electoral reform. And Liberal leader David Kahn announced that his party would implement a mixed member proportional representation system, right? which is a similar system for, for uh, electoral reform nerds, which, which I count myself as one. Um, you'll know it. You'll recognize it as being a similar system that they have in Germany, New Zealand, South Africa, is it similar Scotland to BC, and Wales. Is it similar to what BC just rejected? It, I think that I think it's similar to what BC BC just rejected. It's similar to the what was proposed in um, in Ontario. So essentially, what it would be would you'd have two ballots, one for for a local representative and one for a party, and essentially half the legislature would be local constituencies and half the legislature would be a party list. So it works uh, in How functional democracies. Like. So for every every pro that that brings in, it brings in a con. Like different isn't better just because it's different. Then you're gonna have these party grand poobahs with a mandate to implement their chosen bagman, which you pretty much already have now. So so if an election were held today under the mixed member proportional representation system, yeah, you would go to the polls. You would have two ballots. One ballot would be your local constituency ballot, which would be the same as basically what what you do now, and that would be counted. Right. Basically, like it's the same way it's counted now. Then yeah. you would have a proportional representation ballot as well, where, where you could actually vote for the party, including things like the Freedom Conservative Party, which is brand new. Yeah. So yeah. at that point, you and, could. Yeah. But it only and, kicks in if they hit a certain. Yeah. So 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 that and you could break that down into regions. So you could have um, you could have an Edmonton region. You could have you could do it province wide if you wanted to. Imagine that, the that, that and then a certain amount of seats in the legislature would be uh, would politicians be, with no politicians at large. You'd, you'd have imagine the outcry if Jason Kenney got to implement eight MLAs, and it didn't matter who he chose, but it was because it was the UCP. You're saying the control of the party lists. Would um, become an explicit way of putting people into office. I think that's I think that's why this often comes up as like a mixed member thing. Is you also get yeah. to have a local representative yeah. that you specifically. So you have a local out. representative in your constituency, and then you have the party list system. I don't know. It's it's a it's a it's a different system. It comes with its pros and cons, um, but it's something that functional democracies across the really across the world use. Can I just point out that um, Canada and the U.S are some of the only democracies in the world without a proportional representation system of some form. Yeah, yeah and, and Alberta had a, actually had a proportional representation system. Do you um, remember? Going from 1921 till 1958, I think it was, we had two systems where yeah. in the city it was, an I think it was an alternative vote in the city, and in the rural areas there was, a I think, a runoff system. So 
you know, we talk about first past the post as if it's something that was, you know, has been in place in stone since ancient Greece, but Moses actually. Yeah. Moses. Yeah. But, uh, but, uh, uh, even in Alberta and other parts of the country of Canada, we've used other systems. It's just really only recently in the past 50 or 60 years that we've really, uh, across the board, uh, become uh, first past the post. Um, so I know the UCP has a little bit of electoral reform around recall. I haven't seen much electoral reform in the other platforms. I guess we'll find out today what the NDP are yeah. proposing. Yeah. So. so looking ahead to the week ahead, uh, and I guess we'll talk about well, next week, we'll talk about the NDP platform after they release it. But the leaders are going to be a leaders debate this next week. April Thurs- 4th. Thursday? Thursday, April 4th from 5.30 p.m. till 7 p.m. Uh, television debate and television, radio. Television, radio. It'll be online on every network except for Global, which is interesting because Global had, has hosted the debates uh, over the past, I think for the past three debates they've hosted them. Um, now, I don't know exactly what the background on that was, but there was some, you know, there's always some negotiation going on. Um Who's invited is interesting. They're all invited. Well, well actually, they're well, not all invited. They're not. They're not all invited. So right now we have uh, UCP leader Jason Kenney, Alberta Party leader Stephen Mandel, Liberal leader David Kahn, and uh, as of today have confirmed their attendance. Who's missing from that Re- list? <laughs> NDP leader Rachel Notley. <laughs> oh right, her. has not. From what I understand, has not yet confirmed her attendance, but obviously will likely be there. The one who hasn't been invited from what I understand, is Freedom Conservative Party leader Derek Fildebrandt, who is an MLA in the legislature, who is running for, you know, running a political party that is that is recognized, though it's only running 24, 24 candidates across the province. There's a big stink online about Derek Fildebrandt yeah. not being invited. Suddenly a lot of NDP MLAs and ministers are sure big Derek Fildebrandt fans. I think I saw Brian Mason calling on him being part of it. So it looks to me like the NDP is playing chicken on this issue and they won't confirm the premier's participation until Derek is included. So under the old adage of follow the money, think about, well, why would she want Derek Fildebrand to be there? Because it helps her because Derek is going to focus on Jason Kenney. So these things kind of go in a big circle and suddenly this FCP NDP alliance has formed. It's kind of like Survivor. Did you guys ever watch that? Mm-hmm. You know, I watched the very first episode of Survivor and I thought, man, this is lame. And I never, ever watched it again. Well, they the get very the first episode. What was it called? The torch uh, ceremony? Uh-huh. And you'd see these alliances kick in uh-huh. where it's like, well, I'm going to, I'm not going to kick that person out and they're going to support me until we get to the final ballot. Suddenly, Rachel Notley and Derek Fildebrandt are the, best this, of friends. This is like uh, Daniel Smith and Brian Mason traveling around the right. province doing town halls together, like yeah. we saw before the 2012, after, before the 2012 election. So, in the end, I think Rachel Notley certainly will be there, and I don't think Derek will be. And I think the reasons are his party is not claiming to run, be running for government. They can't elect enough MLAs to form a government. Right. So whether you look forwards or backwards, whether you're an MLA or not, he cannot theoretically win government. And I think that, I mean, it's true there aren't really any hard rules, but I think that's not a bad one. Could this party theoretically win? Now, what about the Greens? I guess they theoretically could win. Well, the Greens only have 32 candidates, oh, okay. so they're, they're not uh, not so in a position go. to form, to at least form a majority, wouldn't be in a position to form a majority government. Um, would yeah, you guys, I mean... Would I, you include Derek if it was up to you? You know, I... Out of entertainment? At a, for, for entertainment value, absolutely. Derek Fildebrandt would make good television. There um, are two people who are but, going to be potentially premier on yeah. April 17th. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah, 
24 candidates across the province, the vast majority of people who are going to tune into the debate, including myself, living in Edmonton Highlands, Norwood, Norwood, will not have a Freedom Conservative Party candidate on the ballot. So I, I, would, I won't have a choice to vote for the Freedom Conservative Party. Similar could be, to be said. I also don't have a Liberal candidate running in my riding. The Liberals are only running 50 candidates. But now they that, could win a majority with 50. Well, yeah, they could win a majority. But as a, as a theoretical like threshold, yeah. they're running enough candidates to win government. Derek's not. Yeah, in theory. Um, How else do you do this? You know, yeah, like I, well, I mean, I think that the, I mean, the, the, the problem is, is that there's been inconsistencies in the past in terms of who's invited and candidate, whether candidates are running a full slate. Now, I, I, if your party's not running a full, if your party's only running 24 candidates in an election at a, and there's 87 ridings, you probably shouldn't be invited to join right. the televised leaders debate. But would you, what would you do? Chris? Going from how I felt about this federally when it came up over and over for Elizabeth May and the Green Party, I think it didn't make sense to me to make the threshold. Do you already have yeah. a member elected? Because the leaders debates are like a gigantic tool for leaders who want to get somebody in first. So like if we're talking about getting new parties in our mm. assemblies, yeah. I think um, you can't use, do you already have someone elected? Um, you're looking at my button, the Bill Aberhart button. It says uh, Bible bill does not approve. <laughs> Eric Dick in Lethbridge makes these. They're wow. wonderful. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah. I think maybe the threshold of like, can you elect enough members to form a majority makes sense. It could still be manipulated because you could still have a bunch of Alberta independents and every other party out well, there. Well, yeah, and that's the true. question is, yeah, it's the Alberta Independence Party is running 63 candidates. And I, um, I'm just going to throw this out there. It's 2019. Does this even really matter anymore? Like, I, I will watch for sure. Mike. I will watch for sure. Do TV debates still matter, guys, in 2019? Whoa. Do we remember Math is Hard from 2015? Yeah, I, th I think... I, I think that was a major turning point in that election. What, what, what I think is going to be interesting is... and Yeah, I do I do think that they matter. Uh, and I, think, I do think that they show how much of an election and how much, how much the leaders play into helping people decide how they're going to vote rather than the individual candidates. I mean, really, we talked about this before. It's leaders and the the party brand and the leaders are the, are the probably the biggest like 90%. ignite. Yeah. Like 90%, the biggest influencers in terms of how, how someone's going to vote. Sorry, all those local candidates who are out door knocking today. Um, well, it's a comfort and it's a curse. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I do think that they matter. I think it's going to be interesting to see in terms of because they're going to be broadcast on TV and then online on Facebook and right. on the on the news channels Facebook pages on radio, I wonder how and I, and I speak as as uh, you know someone in my mid thirties who hasn't had cable in years. Um, I wonder how much it's going to change in the next few years in terms of the actual networks hosting these leaders debates. But the networks are adapting too. I mean, yeah. to be fair to them. Oh they, yeah. No, no, but anyway, I mean, no, I'm not saying that the networks wouldn't, wouldn't host them in the future. I'm saying in terms of their viewership online versus actually on television, I think that's going to be something that's going to be interesting to watch over the next few years. Cause I would imagine that most of the people I know in terms of my friends, Right. Most of them probably don't have cable and right. most of them are going to watch it on Facebook or watch it on YouTube rather well, than actually tune in and watch it on the television live. The other day, the Kenny main leaders tour probably only had him in front of like two or 300 faces in a whole day. And they had like 25,000 impressions on social media mm -hmm. that same day. So campaigning has changed, mm -hmm. and the leaders know this, and mm -hmm. so do the networks. Like, if you ask Global and CTV, they know this, too. So what you used to see 
a decade ago or certainly like two decades ago would be large face-to-face rallies with crowds and they'd rent out hockey arenas and things like that. That isn't really how it's done anymore for a variety of reasons. And so people still do watch TV, but like you said, Facebook Live has become a very, very important part of campaigning and Instagram and social Mm -hmm. media and all that stuff. And it's not just for the like, you know, easy answers of, well, that's where we can express things, but also because that's where people get their news. That's where people actually watch Mm -hmm. things happen that are important to them. So Generation Z, we've talked about before, they're digital natives. But I think global knows that. Like, I don't think the TV networks are going down without realizing the challenge in front of them. Mm-hmm. Oh no, yeah, and I think I think they know. I think they know what's it. what's in front of them. I'm just I'm just interested to know if that'll impact. It'd be interesting to see how that impacts future debates. From a public service perspective of what these debates, what role these debates fulfill, I really want. Um, curators of these debates who are like actual credible media i I don't Mm -hmm. want like a completely unfiltered or even facebook run debate uh Mm -hmm. no please no Um, No, i like having real journalists on the panel yeah the other reason why i think in-person debates matter is because um it really like stuff gets a lot less theoretical when you see we will see this week people debating issues about gsas with one openly gay party leader on stage yeah that's David Kahn. David Kahn. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, and, and people's, pers- there will be a, c- a cognitive gap or a reinforcement of people's perceptions of the leaders. So if you expect Jason Kenney, for example, to come in and just be angry like Brett Kavanaugh and sort of just snort and stomp around, you know, then there'll be a cognitive gap. If you expect Rachel Notley to not be able to articulate economic principles, there'll be a gap. So it's, it's an interesting thing where you actually see them performing in real time where there isn't any editing and you actually get a sense of who they are and what their personality is because so much of this decision is emotional and that moment with the late Jim Prentice and Rachel Notley was a huge moment in the campaign yeah when really it you know he probably didn't mean to set a huge moment in the campaign but in live interactions there's no there's no way to hide from stuff like that and so typically leaders are very risk averse they are all aware of the knockout punch moments and they just tend to not yeah. put themselves out there for any yeah. of those i so i, I think it'll be interesting to see i mean both Rachel Notley and Jason Kenney are skilled debaters skilled parliamentarians i don't expect we'll see any math is difficult mistakes um, I mean, it'll be interesting to see because I, you know, they're, they're, I think it will. I think it could get heated, um, but I don't expect them either of them to fluff up like that. I, th- it'll be interesting to see. I mean, David Kahn is kind of an unknown, mm-hmm. um, simply because I haven't really seen him in this type of situation. He's a lawyer, so I expect he does have some debate experience. And he's run for office a few times. Yeah, and he's run to office for off for office a few times. It'll be interesting to see how what what he does. Stephen Mandel will be interesting. Very um, grumpy old man Mandel. Yeah, because this isn't necessarily the environment i think he's used to i mean i'm sure charming he oh yeah no no but in terms of a of a i I wonder getting people in his face he's not super comfortable yeah and as mayor of edmonton he didn't i mean the lead the the city city council doesn't really work it's not really a debate format like this there's not really the same type of cut and thrust and even when he was an mla and i mean he was a minister of the crown minister of health very briefly like we're talking like i think he was an mla for like four or five months um, or maybe it was six or seven months. Um, but even then, uh, I, I wasn't incredibly impressed with his 
his uh his debate skills in the legislature yeah um i don't so i don't i don't know how seasoned he is in terms of, of this type of thing he's kind of the the one i'm i'm watching i think that for the alberta party this is kind of their the debate could be their i don't read too cliche but it could be their make or break moment like they, they're setting themselves up they're trying to put themselves in a position to kind of take advantage of an opportunity take advantage of a of of a shift in the election and yeah. i really think that's a big part of the alberta party's campaign so far we haven't i don't think we've really seen much traction from the alberta party but they're kind of positioning themselves they have 87 candidates they're trying right. they're talking about forming government um they're, they're doing everything they need to do to kind of put themselves in the right position in case the opportunity presents itself he's got this dismissive let's just focus on the work side to him which i think is going to go into their actual pitch I think he's hoping that Notley and Kenny will fight and argue yeah. and look silly. And then his whole like dismissive, I'm too busy for this nonsense. Let's cut down to business thing. He's going to say something like that. Like here you're seeing all these ridiculous things. Forget about all that dismissive. This, this, this is like the 1991 is okay. Political nerds take here's your get to get your notepads out. Uh, 1991 British Columbia election. The Mike Harcourt and Rita Johnson are, you know, in the midst of a heated debate during the leaders debate and Gordon Wilson, who somehow got himself into the leaders debate. I think he, he got a court injunction or something to get himself in the, in the leaders debate because the liberals actually didn't have any seats. He had this big moment where, you know, he said, this is, you know, this is an example of why we can't get anything done in this province. And the liberals went from zero seats to winning 17 seats and forming the official opposition. So, you know, there's an opportunity for those types of moments, but not Lee and Kenny know that. Yeah. They're not going to go fly off. Yeah. Yeah. Derek's around. Well, that's the thing. If 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 Derek Fildebrandt is involved, then our uh, you know our predictions might be totally way off, and and uh, and you know get your popcorn and beer because it'll be interesting to watch. So tune in April fourth, five thirty to seven thirty seven o'clock. Okay, I just have one random thing to add, um, which is that I, I saw that in the UCP platform, um, the phase out of coal that was set to be done by twenty thirty has now not been set for 2030 and uh the i feel like john snow about climate change like nothing else matters but climate change like the war uh, against like us us summoning the army of the dead of climate change for ourselves is the only thing that matters and the idea of continuing to allow coal burning to be part of our energy infrastructure is insane to me not to mention the 300 million dollars estimated in healthcare costs every year from coal pollution you're right. not going to get any argument from me. Cool. You know, the, the, the argument for me, though, would be the proportionate cost of action versus the proportionate benefit to Alberta. So I don't dispute the, the that pollution and climate change are significant issues for humanity. The issue is, should Alberta and the economy and jobs pay the full brunt of the cost by shutting down by 2030? Or should we stretch it out a little bit when? And I'm just making the argument that the the global emitters, the significant emitters are not here. And we can cut our nose off to try to save the world, but it's not going to change the numbers. Fossil fuels have been great for powering Alberta's economy to where we're at now. Coal, oil, methane have been really important for developing our infrastructure. We have to transition off of them. We're a 21st century economy. Let's act like it. And every other jurisdiction uses us as a talking point to to justify their own inaction yeah well i'm just saying the argument is slow down there like the ucp position would be slow down there's no point in being that i've said this before in braveheart the first soldier at the at the tip of the spear who just gets mowed down by the other soldiers let's slow down 
let's let some other jurisdictions catch up. Um, I think winter is coming. Like, I, I think we don't deny that. But the problem I had with the 2030 promise was that it was almost like being self-martyring where you, you say, you know, we're going to lead the world. We're going to take it on the chin. Um, and it put real families and real economic situations in bad situations because we still need those jobs. We still need that part of the economy. So we're just saying slow down. My, my counter argument to that would be the tens of thousands of family displaced by wildfires in Fort McMurray or flooding in Calgary that we know is getting worse. Right. But no matter what Alberta does, we're not going to make significant changes to the global CO2 problem. Now, which is why you say we'll be a leader and step like I, I'm not positioning a full stop. I'm just saying what they're saying is slow down a little bit. Okay. So we've talked about what's coming up this week. We reviewed the last week. I think we've probably filled enough time for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. And thanks again to our awesome guest producer, Chris Chang and Phillips for putting up with me and for helping us put the show together. <laughs> and of course, a huge thanks to the Alberta podcast network powered by ATB for supporting the show. I just thought of something that I wanted to do. There's two podcasts I want to give a shout out to. Sure. So I've really enjoyed the uh, Edmonton Journal podcast, The Press Gallery. I think Emma and Claire and yep. Keith and Sarah and whoever else they have on actually does a really good job. And by diving in deep on the policies of the two major parties and sort of on the rest, it allows this podcast, ours, to just focus on the horse race. So I appreciate your hard work there, guys. Also, there's a new podcast that just came out this week called oh, really? The Outrage Machine. The Outrage Machine, okay. With friend of the pod, Natalie Pond, oh. is one of the co-hosts. Uh, Danielle Parody, Dr. Shama Rangwala, I'm sorry, Dr. Shama is how I refer to her, and then Tim Karengesser. So they've put in a new, and they're talking about being maybe just temporary, but we'll see, but they're talking about political outrage, and their first episode is really good, so Oh, cool. Well, we'll put a link a to it on the, uh, put a link to it on the, on the blog, and, and people can check that out, and I'll check that out too. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. And I just want to say, on the, on the Press Gallery podcast, I thought that, uh, that Janet French from the Edmonton Journal did an excellent job uh, talking about the UCP's education policy and, yeah. and talking about the nuances of the differences between the Education Act and the Schools Act. So I'll put a link to that one on as, as well. But check it out because I thought uh, uh, Janet French, she's like she knows this stuff like the back of her hand. Yeah. And uh, and she did an excellent kind of review, under, helping understand the issue. So And Emma says hilarious things. Yes. Not only because of her Australian accent, but she says she's that. also very clever. Yeah. So send us your feedback uh, or ask us any questions you have for our next episode. Uh, we're hoping to get to the the mailbag for the next episode. Uh, but as you can see, we have a lot to talk about. Uh, you can get us on Twitter at, at DaveBerta or on the DaveBerta Facebook page. Or you can email us at podcast at DaveBerta.ca. Thanks for listening.